1: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK principal David
2: Leach. David, I trust you are well. I am as well as ever. Um, loving lockdown and get to play a lot of tennis. And Charles, I, I hope you're liking it up there in Byron Bay and pretty sure at least half of our listeners are going to be in lockdown and finding something to do.
1: Well oh, at least half. Um, I hope there's there's not doubles tennis, um, David. Otherwise, that might be outside the
2: um the realms of accountability. But um, anyway, I I, I probably need. Uh, I wish it was cutthroat and I had the two because I, I haven't been winning. But let's not go into that, otherwise it'll be a grumpy podcast, uh, Giles. And we should get on to our special <laughs> guest this week. <laughs> we should indeed.
1: Um, look, it's um Tristan Noz from the um Asia Development Bank. Um, the Asia Development Bank bank is actually playing quite a crucial role in the um energization i guess of southeast asia um it's probably in the past been responsible for a lot of coal generation support and i think it's now switching flicking the switch towards renewables anyway david um you did this interview with tristan knowles um this week um let's have a listen to what was said
2: tristan knowles private sector climate finance specialist at asian development bank uh thanks for joining the the podcast today
3: Thanks for having me, Dave. Love your work and uh, happy to be uh, joining the show.
2: I understand that you—you—you you, you, you know we're talking to you not in your official capacity, although with knowledge. Look, you work for the Asian Development Bank. I mean, it's a change for me. Normally, I end up talking uh, about stuff like inverters and grid-forming inverters and frequency stuff, which I, I frankly have had no background in and don't know much about. Finance is another matter. Uh, I know enough about finance to know how much I don't know. Tell me a little bit about the Asian Development Bank and, and what made you leave the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and decide to go and work there?
3: Sure, yeah, good, good question. So look, the ADB is a multilateral development bank. Uh, it's been around for over 50 years and it's basically a, a, an international finance institution whose shareholders and owners consist of various countries. So. Australia is a, a shareholder uh, in the Asian Development Bank. The largest shareholders are Japan, the US and the EU bloc put together. Uh, and, and essentially, you know, uh, starting 50 years ago, the, the mission has been to to help contribute to uh, alleviation of poverty uh, through investments in infrastructure and other sort of uh, sectors uh, in Asia-Pacific region. So, Asian Development Bank, I guess, has two two arms or sides of the bank. There's the sovereign lending side that invests or lends to governments directly. And then there's the non-sovereign or the the sort of private sector side where I work. And, and that's where we're lending to private sector entities. So I, I work specifically in the infrastructure team that covers the, the greater Mekong uh, region here in Southeast Asia. And, and to, to your question on why I left uh, the CFC, obviously the CFC is a a world leader, in terms of, uh, in my view, in terms of you know green finance and clean energy finance and doing some amazing things. Uh, I guess the the personal decision for me was more around you know that the challenge of of global emissions reduction and the challenge of emissions reduction you know in Southeast Asia where there's still a long way to go and and so ADB for me personally is a very uh, interesting place to work in that I get to to see different markets and countries and. Hopefully, play my small bit uh, at the margin in in contributing to the climate change challenge.
2: Yeah, uh, it's probably a bad joke to say you're working on the coal face, isn't it? Really?
3: <laughs> yeah, but for me personally, on the the wind. Well, I don't know what the equivalent is for renewable energy people, but on the wind and uh, solar face.
2: Yes, yes, you're you're under the sun, and because uh, I think we've, I've made this point several times that. Whereas I look to Europe for policy, and I think the carbon uh, price in Europe and just about everything Europe is doing uh, is the model for the rest of the world. Uh, There's no hesitation in saying that. Uh, The reality is that whereas most of us have contributed to climate change, the mitigation and reduction in carbon emissions is going to have to come from Asia, uh, which dominates them and where the demand for energy is growing very rapidly. I think overall, the um, ADB, the Asian Development Bank, has something like about US $200 billion of assets. And I think uh, it broadly is uh, committed to lending or investing around about US $80 billion over 10 years into climate mitigation in Asia. That's a pretty big number. Have I, have I got that about right?
3: Yeah, that's right. So under the sort of ADB strategy 2030, there's an $80 billion uh, target by 2030 for climate finance, so that's mitigation and adaptation. Um, so, yeah, on an on an uh, annual basis, it sort of works out to around eight or so uh, uh, billion. Um, so, it's qu- quite a big target, but obviously we're working across you know huge economies. So, you know, my personal view, I guess, if you look at the overall challenge for not only MDBs but for you know the broader investment community, uh, there's still probably a long way to go.
2: Yes, uh, sorry we've used a couple of terms here MDBs and multilateral without taking too much time just for our uh less literate financial audience.
3: So yeah, sorry MDB uh, multilateral development bank so you know ADB uh so Asian Development Bank the International Finance Corporation which is part of the World Bank uh Inter-American Development Bank so there's a there's a you know five or seven or so of these uh, multilateral lending institutions across the world that cover different jurisdictions.
2: And and, and do you guys, uh, I wasn't going to ask this, cooperate in like picking a particular region? So like, for instance, you work in the Mekong uh, uh, geography uh, and that encompasses not just Vietnam, I guess, but also Cambodia and Laos and anywhere else?
3: Yeah, so we cover in the team. I mean, we cover uh, from Myanmar through to Vietnam. So Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, uh, and we do see and work with the other, you know, into the other MDBs like IFC and AIB. Uh, that's the the sort of uh, the the development bank that the Chinese kind of initiated a few years ago. Um, so yeah, we we definitely see and work with uh, other uh, MDBs and and bilaterals. There's a Probably for people in Australia, you, you don't see it so much, but there's a whole host of uh, bilateral lenders uh, that generally have a development, uh, you know, mandate. Uh, not unlike, I guess, Export Finance Australia, but you know, there's German uh, DEG, there's Norfund in Norway, there's FMO, there, there's you know, lots of different bilateral lenders. There's DFC, the American uh, sort of bilateral development agency. So, yeah, it is a big world. This. Um, uh, development finance institution world.
2: It is indeed. And in the past, uh, a lot of money would have gone to developing uh, coal generation and oil and gas, for instance. I know that the um, uh, Australian LNG projects uh, used to used to uh, benefit from various forms of export finance, concessional loan rates and things. But if we just uh, come back to, uh, let's pick a country, and I'm going to pick Vietnam, although I should, we'll ask about Thailand afterwards as well. Vietnam's electricity consumption has been growing at a rate of knots, uh, I think, uh, you know, 8 to 10% a year uh, for, for a decade or so. Uh, and uh, I think historically it was largely a hydro country, uh, but you can't, there's always a limit to hydro development. And so it was having to switch to coal and gas. But over the past few years, it started to switch more into renewables. Could you just talk a little bit about, uh, what you've, the story is how it's developed from your, what
3: you've seen? Yeah, sure. And Vietnam's a great choice. I mean, it's a fascinating case study. So if you rewind to, let's say, the start of 2018 or sort of mid-2017, I would say just, just off the top of my head, there would have been less than a couple of hundred megawatts of uh, solar and wind capacity in Vietnam. And if you fast forward to today, you know, a couple of years later, there's about 20 gigawatts, uh, mostly solar, but, but wind, I think will catch up quite quickly. And, you know, by the end of the year, we, we might see a figure that's kind of in the range of 25 to to 30 gigawatts of, uh, solar and wind with, you know, over five gigawatts of wind, uh, that's, that's reached sort of its commercial operations date. So, and is sort of operating in standard uh, language. So, uh, it's been remarkable how quickly that has developed. And I think, um, You rightly pointed out that it's in response fundamentally to rapid rates of economic growth and then obviously the corresponding growth in uh, demand for electricity. And I think, um, you know, for a country like Vietnam, as you said, when you've tapped out of your hydro resources and you need to build quickly, uh, you know, the best option right now, as they've uh, more than found out, is is wind and solar, just because it can be built so rapidly and, and there is sort of generally a willingness to To build it and finance it uh, although there is some nuance to that in Vietnam Uh, and I think uh, you know that's done a lot I think to to offset what would have been uh, you know the need to build you know new new uh, coal and gas.
2: Yeah and and so tell me about uh, the role that you've uh, played in that I mean does the ADB does it it just receives requests for loans and decides whether to uh, uh, grant them uh, or do you go further in that and try and um, uh, like look at the policy settings or suggest what you might be more willing to lend towards? How, how does it actually work?
3: So I think across, you know, ADB as uh, a there's a multilateral bank, that there is sort of a big toolkit. So there's sort of the sovereign lending side and the advisory side and and uh, you know, then the sort of direct lending side where, where I am. Um, so I think it's a, it's a mix of those things and we're probably working concurrently on, on all of them at any one time. Um, uh, obviously at the end of the day that the host country you know, will decide you know, their own policies and strategies and programs. So uh, you know, we, we do our best I think as, a, as an institution to, to try and uh, influence things in the right direction. But, but at the same time, you know, we, we also try to play a constructive role Given the the policy settings that that are eventually you know decided on and, and implemented, um, and so to sort of to, to give you kind of a real example of what that all means, the the PPA that's been offered in Vietnam uh, yeah, has some challenges because it's uh, you know you can find a lot in the press about this when it was first announced in 2017. This is the sort of standard domestic uh, solar and wind PPAs, but they. They allow for well fundamentally they they 're governed by Vietnam law and, and subject to Vietnam arbitration, uh, which for a lot of you know international investors is, is sort of a, a can be a bit of a red flag up front if they 're new to the market uh, and then in addition the the ppa uh, doesn 't have sort of change of law provisions protecting against any change in tariff uh, and then there 's also the ability under the PPA to curtail the projects so uh taken altogether that as well as kind of insufficient termination regimes made that PPA you know difficult for international lenders to 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 bank. Um but but I guess the way we've been approaching it is to try and be constructive and work out uh you know appropriate risk allocations with, with certain sponsors where we can you know bank projects on a limited recourse basis and and still be part of that growth story for renewables in Vietnam. So uh
2: uh, you you can you you can absorb some of those risks because it's within the mandate and you you, you could be comfortable uh, lending to such projects and uh, do you team up with any particular equity partner uh, like, you know and go from one project I mean can I ask how much uh, you know 20, 20 uh, gigawatts is let's say it's uh, I don't know, it's probably close to 30 US billion dollars worth of investment um, how much would adB how, Have out out to that sector.
3: Uh, So we've done about, so we've done, and this would all be in the public domain, I guess now. But it's it's uh, maybe four solar projects and one wind project to date. Um, And I mean, sort of to be clear, we we take some of the risks, but it's it's also about sort of risk allocation with the sponsors as well. So. You know, there are there are some risks that we we we're not willing to take, and we sort of work with sponsors that we think are willing to take those risks because they can take a longer term view on the market or they're comfortable with the risk. Um, but yeah, we, you know, with twenty gigawatts, I guess we've probably been involved in the financing of about, uh, I'd say, you know, maybe between five hundred and a, a thousand megawatts, somewhere in that range.
2: That's yeah, pretty pretty reasonable. And uh, I I don't want to just talk about Vietnam, although it interests me, but I think uh, Vietnam also has a pretty good wind resource, doesn't it? Do you expect to see, uh, well, let's talk about it in the context. I understand Vietnam sort of decides how much to build more or less. Uh, They have this sort of plan and we're coming up to plan eight, which was supposed to be released in March or something, but it's now uh, been delayed. Um, what's what's the prospects for more wind and solar going forward in Vietnam?
3: I think the prospects are pr- looking pretty strong. Uh, you'll probably see a change in the approach. So to date, the the government's taken sort of a fixed feed-in tariff uh, approach. So basically the way it's worked is that if you can reach uh, COD, which is, again, sort of project finance jargon, but it just means commercial operations date, the, the project is... Established and running and, and generating power and being paid for that power uh, If you can reach that milestone by a certain date that the government would or, or EVN I should say the the national utility would pay you a certain tariff uh, And those have sort of been declining over time. So if you reached you know your, your COD by June 2019 You know you got nine point three five cents if you reached it by you know June 2020 it goes down again and and so those have been declining but What we haven't seen yet in Vietnam, and I think what will probably come next, is a move to more sort of competitive uh, auction procurement. Um, And I I suspect that's what we'll see and what's been sort of telegraphed is what we'll see in PDP-8. Um,
2: That's the reverse auctions uh, or tenders, uh, as I used to call them, that have become, again, developed first in Europe, I suppose, in this space. And it's spread out all over the world and what we saw in Canberra and the like. But I, I, I suppose some developers would be quite unhappy about that because notwithstanding all the uh, difficult terms, uh, nine US cents, $90 a megawatt hour, uh, would look pretty attractive to the, uh, to the average Australian solar would-be developer.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it is, as you rightly pointed out, it's a risk-reward uh, trade-off. And, um, you know, there has been uh, curtailment of projects in Vietnam, uh, so... You know the, the the. But there has
2: the, been in Australia too.
3: Yeah, yeah true. Actually, I've, I think I've missed a lot of that since I left. But you know all the marginal loss factors and all those kind of things that have that have come to bite. Good stuff.
2: So. Yes, exciting things that we could talk about in another podcast. Let let, let me um uh, move forward then. So I guess the question immediately to me as a uh, policy guy is uh, is what about the other countries in the Mekong? Do they see what's happening in Vietnam and see that it's it's probably working quite well and want to have some of it as well I mean Thailand's the obvious example probably I, I can't remember I think uh, Vietnam consumes a bit over at 200 terawatt hours of electricity the same as Australia I don't actually know the Thailand number but it, it can't be uh, too much less if anything
3: yeah I think look until the recent sort of uh, expansion in in Vietnam Thailand was sort of the regional leader so there's about you know three gigawatts of solar or so Uh, you know maybe two gigawatts of wind in Thailand just roughly speaking Uh, and so I think they were the leader Um, now Vietnam is you know well and truly taken over uh, in terms of installed capacity Um, each country I guess faces its own challenges so Thailand the growth rate isn't as high and also the installed capacity is is, you know kind of already there including a lot of gas capacity so Thailand you know, it's a bit like in Australia where you sort of to make room for renewables, you, you kind of, you know, need to you know, reduce over time the fossil fuel, uh, you know, um, role in the, in the mix um, because you don't have that underlying growth in demand. So, uh, you know, Thailand's probably challenged more in a sense that they don't have the, the rapid growth in demand that, that Vietnam's seeing. Uh, but, but otherwise, there's certainly a lot more potential in, in Thailand.
2: And, uh, you know, I could run around every country, but is there any others that you... I mean, Philippines is is another uh, one. That's where the ADB's um, uh, uh, centre is, head office. Um, I suppose it's not really your area, but where else would would you uh, point towards as as being an exciting place if you were a frontier developer? So I think... uh,
3: I mean, just maybe starting with more where I focus on, and then we can step out from there a little bit, but I think um, th- there's been some interesting stuff happening in Cambodia. Uh, ADB's been involved there in a sort of national solar park, which was the first instance of a of a reverse uh, auction for solar uh, in the region within a sort of uh, solar park context, which is a bit like our kind of, you know, mini version of the renewable energy zones that that are being discussed in Australia. So... Essentially, ADB worked through multiple kind of uh, departments to to do a solar resource assessment, a grid assessment, and then to fund the the, the cost of the the uh, shared services for a sort of solar park and the land and, and the uh, transmission and substation. And then uh, ran an auction. Our advisory team ran an auction to uh, attract bidders in for the capacity in the solar park. And that that process attracted about you know twenty twenty plus bidders and. A price of 3.88 cents uh, per kilowatt hour, which was a, a regional low, but obviously it had a you know much improved PPA, say on the Vietnam uh, PPA. So that was kind of the trade-off there. But I, I think, as you probably see with a lot of the auctions globally, there's just a lot of demand when you structure something, you know, so that it's bankable and you've got a decent off-taker. It's um, the the demand is there, uh, even if the you know the return compression or, or you know the re- returns might be a bit lower. Um, and I think you know in, a, a market that was becoming if you talk about frontier uh, very exciting uh, was Myanmar um, but obviously in February uh, sort of things came to a halt there in terms of progress to frontier hit <laughs> to frontier exactly but there was a uh, there was a pipeline of about a gigawatt of solar that had been uh, auctioned in uh, Myanmar with the with the previous administration there and and uh you know it's it's a shame because i think uh, that those projects were quite exciting and it, it was something that um it would have been good to support but uh yeah that is the challenge of these frontier markets
2: and i guess tristan just stepping away and probably beyond what you'd be comfortable talking about but i'll ask anyway i mean uh is more than just wind and solar of course it's also uh, the other bugbear around the world this year is obviously electric transport and. I guess China to the north there is is really big in EVs these days. Does it does it do from what you see in 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 the Mekong area? Is that, um, is that also something that uh, is going to
3: get a run? I think so. I mean, the Mekong region, particularly Thailand, Vietnam, uh, sort of, they have big automotive manufacturing sectors, um, including sort of you know um, production facilities and supply chain you know for, for the big uh, overseas and you know Japanese automakers so I think you know I think even that the Honda Jazz among other cars is, is made in uh, is made in Thailand and shipped to Australia and you know Camrys and things like that so the, the ecosystem is here and I think if you're in the car business uh, you know and you're, you're sort of paying attention to climate it would seem uh, pr- pretty obvious that that we're sort of heading in a in a direction of net, emit, net zero emissions and and more electrification. So I'd say that that EV story will, will have to catch on here eventually. There are some companies that are sort of already doing quite a bit uh, in in Thailand and, and in Vietnam, so um, there's a company in Thailand called Energy Absolute that is that is doing some work in e-mobility and, and uh, EVs and has sort of invested in a charging network and there's a company in in vietnam called vinfast that's part of uh, vin group which is a big or the biggest conglomerate in vietnam that's also you know planning to get into the space quite aggressively so uh, i think you'll yeah you'll definitely see it but in terms of you know domestically you know it's not like a, a norway or anything where new vehicle sales are you know well, I don't know what the latest percentages are but you know 25 50% or whatever it is in norway well over 50% well i think over 50%. norway
2: is essentially all pretty much all electric in terms of new sales now but I mean it, it isn't it's a, not a big market not like a, yeah.
3: no exactly but I think yeah I mean the point being that there's probably not the domestic incentives yet in this region uh, for consumers um, but uh, you know the export uh, incentive is, is sort of already emerging
2: yes well Tristan, I don't know. I mean, uh, I feel we've only been talking for a little while and really only uh, scratched the surface on what's uh, (laughs) a huge area. We don't even... I mean, uh, China's a shareholder in the ADB as well, uh, I think, isn't it? uh, Yeah. uh, As is Japan, and Japan's got... You know, there's so much we could talk about. But is there any other... uh, I mean, I guess my overall question is... in in the areas that you operate you'd still feel optimistic that we're going to see continued progress it's never never fast enough not, not even cooey but things are still moving in the right direction
3: yeah look i think with the with the sixth ipcc report definitely the the never fast enough is sort of the message of that report right so yeah i think it's um I don't know what the numbers look like in Southeast Asia to sort of get to net net zero or, or, you know, uh, substantially towards kind of 100% renewable grids. Uh, You'd need a lot more interconnection. You'd need, you know, a lot more storage. You'd need uh, probably more on the hydropower, you know, maybe some pumped hydro as well as the, the, you know, battery and whatever other storage options are available. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I I do think we're really only scratching at the surface at the moment. I mean, if you look at contribution to, uh, you know, total supply in, in sort of megawatt hours, it's it's still quite low. I mean, I don't know, the latest figure Vietnam has been growing rapidly, but it would still be, I'd say, just to hazard a guess, 10 to, you know, 10 to 15 percent or so of supply. Um, so we're definitely not at the, you know, South Australia or, or whatever your comparison might be for sort of high, high penetration of renewables. So there's a long way to go. Um, I think one thing- Still in
2: Vietnam with the the hydro side of things, it's, uh, you know, you've got this fantastic opportunity to do the firming. I mean, we mentioned Norway, but the other thing Norway contributes to, in Europe is all the hydro resource to firm up all the solar and wind. It's like, it does seem a
3: a good fit. Yeah, I think so. And you've got kind of hydro, you know, some cross-border hydro in Laos as well. And Laos kind of mantra is, you know, to be the battery of Asia. Um, Obviously there's some concerns on sort of mainstream Mekong uh, river hydropower projects. But um, uh, yeah, I think that there is definitely a hydro resource. Thailand also has quite a bit of hydro, uh, including I think they have one pumped hydro plant, which I even visited and had a look at. So um, yeah, the, the, the sort of uh, capacity is there, but it would still need some, some investment and some sort of repurposing, I think.
2: And uh, I'll just ask about transmission as well. What about uh, not so much within the country transmission development, but uh, sort of regional transmission, uh, you know, Mekong transmission, if I can put it that way?
3: Yeah, there's sort of a... uh, Yeah, I mean, there are some sort of individual cross-border projects that, you know, create a bit of a regional grid, but I think there's a bigger bigger, and, I'm sure, sort of highly political uh, ASEAN power grid sort of uh, proposal and project that's been running for a few years so um you know i think that'll that'll take some time but but you'd think in the end if you're getting to a high renewables grid you, you'd you sort of need need uh more resilience and more interconnection uh, like in sort of all markets where you have higher levels of renewables so i'm just looking at a map now that's sort of on this asian power grid and it has some uh you know, more connections basically running down between Laos and Vietnam, uh, more connection running between Thailand and Myanmar, uh, and then even a connection running across from Malaysia to Sumatra in Indonesia. So that's going west, and then also a connection running potentially from Malaysia, uh, Peninsula Malaysia, over to sort of Malaysian Borneo. Uh, so, yeah, some, some interesting long-term potential there. Um, did think- not run to
2: Singapore, or else the guys up in uh, the Northern Territory will get a bit nervous. But uh, 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 we'll have to see how that goes. Well, Tristan, it's been a great conversation. It's not an area I know enough about. I'm sure many of our listeners uh, won't have thought a lot about power de- renewable development in Southeast Asia, but it's an incredibly important area, uh, and you know it's an, yet another one of the battlegrounds if you want to put it that way between coal exports from Australia and local renewable development um, and uh, it's been great chatting thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us
3: thanks Dave nice to catch up and have a chat
1: and that was uh, Tristan Knowles from the Asia Development Bag David look a um, really interesting interview actually I'm um, going to be fascinating to see what they actually come up with towards the end of this year as far as um, designing a scheme for coal exits um, what was your big take from it
2: Uh, My big take is that, um, you know, (laughs) if we go back to the days of uh, when Australia and America were fighting in Vietnam, uh, one of the reasons we were there was because of the domino theory uh, that, you know, communism was going to sweep down and take over all these countries one by one. And it's really, uh, you know... uh, It's not directly related to electricity, but I do think, you know, when we look at Afghanistan uh, today, just completely off the topic, that would it still be better if America was still in Vietnam? I don't think anyone really would think that, especially not the Vietnamese. (laughs) Uh, But my take on this is that, you know, Vietnam was going to be a great growth market for coal because its electricity consumption is growing uh, really hard and it didn't have room for much more hydro. And now we're seeing that in next to no time, uh, mainly because of economics, uh, solar has been able to get in there like crazy and get up to 20 gigawatts, which is a lot, you know. And uh, so... it is that, a lot, isn't it? <laughs> it is a lot, from uh, pretty much zero to 20 gigawatts within three or four years. I mean, the, the speed, once uh, uh, Asia... Once Vietnam, and the same would be said of China, uh, I suppose, really go for something, they go good and hard. And so this can happen in other countries. I think India is another one that we don't talk enough about uh, where a lot is going on. So that was my big take from it. And then, as you said, at the outset, um, the Asian Development Bank, uh, uh, together with, um, I think it's Prudential in the UK, uh, looking at a mechanism only in its uh, fledgling stages to actually put money into the region to pay coal stations to close. So in every country that we go to around the world, uh, we've got this battlefront between the incumbent coal producers and and the uh, disruptive uh, solar and wind guys. And uh, we're on the good guys' side, Giles.
1: Well, we are. Look, and um, it's, I mean, it's be very similar, I'd imagine, to the, um, to what's happening in Germany. I mean, we just saw recently a coal-fired power station, a hard coal power station, just completed six years ago, has already just sort of signed up to um, exit and gets payment to close down early. Bit of a contrast to what's happening in Australia, of course, um, David. We've got the energy ministers, I think, meeting under this sort of secret, um, you know, cabinet and confidence, despite recent rulings. Um, this, um, on Friday, I think ostensibly to discuss some of the energy security board proposals. Um, and, um, and chief amongst that is this, um, idea of this sort of, you know, sort of de facto or not even de facto, like a capacity market. Um, interesting to see. Um IEFA and um, Green Energy Markets have put out an updated analysis talking about the potential cost of this being up to $7 billion a year, twice the cost of the carbon price. Now, of course, that's based on the assumption that it might look like the WA market, but we don't actually know what it's going to look like. So I guess those numbers can be interpreted many different ways. But um, it's certainly it, it's just another sign, David, it seems to me that we're just sort of going about this all the wrong way.
2: Uh, Absolutely. And it's not the way the ESB itself said it was going to go about it. The ESB's first paragraph on the topic said that in this section, uh, uh, we we are interested in uh, planning the orderly exit of coal markets. That's not a direct quote of coal generators and ensuring that uh, enough uh, dispatchable generation is built before they close. That's what they said their aim of it all was. Uh, and let's see how the policy that they come up with actually fits in with that. Other than that, I, I really can't say any more. I'm just going to hold them to their word, hopefully.
1: Well, indeed, and look, it was interesting to see the um, Australian Energy Regulators' report. I mean, it was it a was summary of the past financial year, and particularly what was interesting was the second quarter, and it noted 1,000 days um, of baseload um, shutdowns um, uh, 1,000 days lost of baseload um, in the last quarter which is about 11 units a day um, pointed out by the Australian Energy Regulator. And we also heard Origin Energy um, talking about its results. Um, look, it like AGL and I guess Energy Australia has been sort of um, smashed by the falling um, wholesale electricity prices which happened for most of the last year. A bit of a bump up to record levels in the second quarter thanks to those um, outages, particularly Calide in Queensland. Um, it's reasonably confident that can it can make a raring operate reasonably flexibly but it doesn't seem to be in favor of this sort of physical reliability operation it was interesting listening um to Frank Calabria today, he was talking more about the New South Wales um, scheme as, um, as as the only serious policy around the place, and, and also t- not quite ready to commit to big battery storage. And look, I think I've just been sort of a um, bit of stream of consciousness there, David. What did you make of Origins' result?
2: <laughs> uh, I didn't make too much of Origins' result. I've been pretty well flagged ahead of time. And uh, Frank uh, Calabria always talks well, uh, but then you look at what he actually does, and um, Outside of uh, buying Octopus, a 20% stake, uh, a very big uh, new age uh, retailer in the UK that's also building a a, um, customer care system for Origin here, really nothing much happens. I mean, the fact is the matter if we look forward next to next year for Origin, uh, they're going to see a big recovery in their gas profits from APLNG, they're forecasting, and I think that's quite realistic, and, and a terrible year for electricity because like AGL, they've locked in lower prices. And, and frankly, you know, talking about batteries is, in my personal opinion as an analyst or my professional opinion, pretty dumb because what they really need is the bulk energy first. They need the wind and the solar, and they've always been very reluctant to do that. Now, you mentioned the um, – uh, we've been talking about the ESB, and I think uh, you, you've got a seminar coming up that you're hosting, haven't you, uh, Giles, where we've got Matt Keane talking. But that'll be after the ESB uh, decisions, but he's going to talk about their attitude towards it, I suppose.
1: Well, I don't know when we're going to get a decision from the um, state energy ministers. Um, It's going to be interesting to see. I mean, we've got a bit of an insight um, so far from that leaked document, but that's not the full detail of it. Um, So, yes, we're going to have Matt Keane. We're going to have Ann Collier from the AMC. And we're going to have Simon Corbell from the um, Clean Energy Investors um, Forum, um, I think, or group. So, um, look, it's... A lot of people are interested. We've got um, more than 1,500 people already registered for that. So um,
2: it should be a great um, little... Well, I'm webinar. interested, Charles. Now, also, you're, we're talking about coal unreliability. Uh, one of the things I've been banging on about, and not only me, anyone who, with half a brain who looks at it, well, it, is about the ability of the coal generators to ramp. And there's no doubt Ararings, arguably the most flexible coal generator, uh, one of them in, in the NEM. But by and large, we have already seen minimum demand uh, in winter happened this year. Uh, and and we're already seeing pr- solar prices in the middle of the day back to negative level or electricity prices. Mm. Uh, but the point is the steepness of the ramp that's occurring at the moment as solar falls away uh, is, is already extremely dramatic. Uh, I forget the exact number of thousands of megawatts, but it's a lot and it's steep and it's hard. And guess what? It's going to be a lot worse in three years time. Uh, uh, that's pretty much locked in. So, so there's a lot of uh, serious issues uh, to be dealt with, uh, beyond just a lot of, um, if I can put it this way, hand-wringing about or, or, or greed around a capacity market. I mean, it, it, managing the coal generators uh, out of the system and replacing them with something more fit for purpose uh, is a very serious issue. We can't have all the coal generators closing at once, at least not unless everything has been built in front. I mean, this needs a lot of work. I just don't, wouldn't underestimate it from anyone's point of view
1: doesn't just need a lot of work, it actually needs some good intentions, and we're not too sure we've actually got those um, entirely across the board. Um, enough said on that. Um, that ramping um, issue, David, it sounds, like a, it sounds like a problem a battery could solve.
2: Uh, absolutely. Batteries <laughs> can solve that problem. I, I think they can do that job.
1: Yeah. Um, talking about sort of big vision things, I mean, one I was fascinated to hear Grant Calabria, I mean, he's obviously making a bit of money out of LNG, or I think he's making a bit of money out of LNG, but he's also pursuing green hydrogen, which I guess is the logical technology that could replace LNG. Um, the man with the biggest vision on that is Andrew Forrest. And I guess this is what we're talking about. He's talking about, what was it, 15 million tonnes of green hydrogen by 2030, which would actually require about 150 gigawatts or even 200 gigawatts of new wind and solar so I don't think that's going to be happening in the decade by the end of the decade in Australia and I guess we could lump this into sort of braggawatts rather than megawatts or gigawatts but certainly it's great to have someone that prominent that wealthy that influential having that sort of vision Um, in the end I guess it doesn't really matter whether he delivers it or not um, as long as the we kind of get there with the technologies, um, but it certainly is some helping, I think, to change the debate.
2: Well, as, as regards Twiggy himself, like he's a uh, um, for, um, uh, the, the, they produce a massive amount of iron ore, and it hasn't been uh, very carbon friendly in the past, although that's improving. But can I just point out, he also wanted to build uh, or import LNG. That hasn't happened, despite a lot of talk so far. Uh, he's one of the shareholders up there at Sun Cable in the Northern Territory, which doesn't want to do green hydrogen, it wants to do a cable, plus he's got all the green hydrogen. There's about 400 other people that want to do it green hydrogen. Perhaps that's a very small exaggeration. Uh, and at the, I don't actually think producing the green hydrogen is necessarily going to be the issue. The question is the demand for it, because the, the price that you can produce it at uh, is a long way north of anything at the moment. and you. Um, and then you've got the shipping costs and everything so um uh, we hope to maybe ammonia is the answer but ammonia has got its own set of issues as well there's a a lot of challenges in front of this um and but it's yes it is great to see twiggy out there beating drums and talking very loudly uh that's that's wonderful um and if it's doing it with his own dollars that's also wonderful excellent
1: (laughs) David, I think, um, unless you've got anything else to add um, before the end of this podcast, but I think we've probably taken up enough people's time and we've
2: got another good guest coming up next week. We're doing our tour around the world, Giles. Uh, (laughs) Unfortunately, it's got to be a podcast tour, but I hope we're off to the USA next week.
1: Look forward to um, hearing that. Um, Thank you very much to you, David. Thank you also to our sponsors, um, Evergen. Um, and Pylon, of course, uh, for their ongoing support. Thanks to all the listeners, everyone out there. I um, hope you're making it through lockdown as best you can. Um, might be going on for a while, at least in certain places. But we will certainly be back again next week. Bye for now.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen